0: Well good morning once again and happy Independence Day weekend to everyone. If you're joining us uh, since the last time somebody was up here talking, welcome uh, to those of us who are joining us online on Facebook um, and we are so glad to have you with us. And I was thinking of Independence Day weekend and originally this message was supposed to be last weekend but then I added a week to the series uh, in week three and that pushed this week's message and then I looked at the topic and everything and thought, well, that actually fits really, really well. Um, Because most of you, I would imagine, grew up uh, at the beginning of every weekday, you would do something with all your friends. You would stand and you would put one hand on your heart and you would recite the Pledge of Allegiance in school. And uh, I know our sons still do that in their homeschool curriculum. Um, And if you If you haven't heard it in a while, um, sometimes we move into the workforce and we we don't do that as often, Um, but the Pledge of Allegiance says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And it's that word indivisible that fits with our content so well today. And really speaks into our times uh, very, very well today. Jesus said in Matthew twelve, twenty five, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And as Pastor Keith prayed this morning and acknowledged this morning, we are struggling greatly as a nation as a result of deep deep division which has taken root and has grown and the enemy of our souls knows very very well the power of division he knows the power of division in relationships in marriages in families in teams, whether those are teams in a workplace or teams in a sporting uh, event or a band or whatever, a, a group of people that are aligned for a common purpose, if he can get division in there, he knows the power of division in churches and in denominations, and he knows the power of division in a community or a nation or the world. But he also knows the power of division in the heart of a disciple. In the heart of somebody who is seeking to follow Christ, if he can bring a little bit of division in there and allow that to take root, our enemy can accomplish great things for his purposes because the heart of a disciple must be undivided. That's our focus today is that the heart of a disciple must be undivided. In this whole series, we've been looking at the heart of a disciple, and we've been defining the heart as sort of that central, core part of us. Sometimes in literature, it's referred to as the soul. Um, It's the seat of passion or emotion in a disciple. So we're not just talking about the organ we're talking about the emotional, the, the, the volitional part of us, the soul of a disciple. And a disciple is one who follows Christ, clear and, and simple. That is one who is learning from Christ, one who is following Christ, one who is an apprentice of Christ, learning how to live as he would if he were me. That's a disciple, learning to trust And obey. And so when we look at the heart of a disciple, we are looking at what propels us to action and what directs the actions we take. So all of that is in view as we consider the heart of a disciple. If you've missed one or two of these messages, uh, you can find them online. You can go to our Facebook page. You can go to our website and click on the media tab, and you can catch up. And it's not really, you know, progressive or cumulative. Each message has taken a look at a different um, topic, answering that question. What propels us to action and what directs the actions that we take now last week, we were blessed to have uh, Pastor Kevin Goss, who is going to be pastoring a church we are planting uh, with our northeast district, sorry Northwest District um, in spokane, Washington, and he did a phenomenal job looking at how the heart of a disciple is called. That was our theme last week or our topic last week, and I love the way he put it. He said, "We are called to be fishers of men and feeders of sheep, that there's a dual call. And he looked at the call of Peter in Luke chapter 5, and then the restoration of Peter right at the end of the Gospel of John. And I loved his bottom line as well, that a messenger of the Gospel is always timely because the message of the Gospel is timeless. We, uh, if we are messengers of the Gospel, we are carrying a timeless message. It is always in season. People always need it, not just unbelievers. Sometimes a believer is struggling and they need to be reminded of the good news that they are redeemed. Like sometimes we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and be reminded that it's not just the diving board into the Christian life. It's the whole pool. We swim around in God's grace for the rest of our lives when we accept the good news of the gospel. And so today I want to encourage you to turn to James chapter 1, James chapter 1. Um, If you are joining us online, you can pull up an online Bible, or maybe you have one in front of you. If you're here in the room, uh, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. And we're going to be focusing on uh, a couple of passages in the book of James. Uh, We'll start in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now, the book of James is unique among the New Testament letters and if you read all the letters kind of in short succession in a shorter period of time you'll recognize that James has a very different tone uh, to it. It is often by scholars grouped in with some of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and is considered the New Testament's best uh, presentation of a wise approach to following Christ and uh, it it sounds more like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs than it does one of Paul's letters, Um, and it focuses a great deal on wisdom. In fact, this passage that we're looking at here, starting in verse 5, speaks about wisdom directly. And so uh, I'll read through this, and then we'll back up and and work through verse by verse. Verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does, and so James starts with a presumption that we human beings may need wisdom from time to time; that we don't have it all figured out, and we don't know everything. Unlike uh, the friend of mine I worked with uh, during college, he got married one summer, and uh, some of the guys at the workplace uh, thought we would do him a favor, and we took out an ad in the normal in the newspaper that said um, "encyclopedia for sale." $25, just got married, no longer needed, wife knows everything, <laughs> which his wife really appreciated, and he got into all kinds of trouble over that, and then we finally fessed up and said that was, that was us, we're sorry, and uh, got him out of the doghouse. But, um, but yes, we're in need of wisdom from time to time, and when we need wisdom, James tells us that we should seek it from God that we should go straight to him. He is the source of all wisdom. All true wisdom is God's wisdom. And so we approach God and seek his wisdom first and foremost, not merely as one source among many sources, or even the first among equals, but we seek wisdom from God as the source of true divine wisdom. Wisdom. It comes from his word. We can find it through prayer. We can find it in a number of different ways. We can seek godly counsel from people who've been doing this thing longer than us. And you should have your eyes open for wise people, people who generally get it right. And then when you need wisdom, you can go to God's word. You can go to him in prayer. You can go to people that you have identified as wise people. And he tells us in verse 6 that when we seek it, when we pray, when we ask God for wisdom, we must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And I wrote we should seek in faith, ask in faith, believe in faith, trust in faith, and rely and cling to God's wisdom in faith, in faith that even when the world is screaming at us to go in this direction, God's wisdom tells us to do this, and we respond to that in faith. Because we're told that if we, if we ask with doubts, then we shouldn't expect much. If we ask and we say, well, it may or may not work to do it God's way, then we shouldn't expect a whole lot. But instead, we ask in faith, we seek in faith, we believe in faith. We choose to feed our faith on the Word of God, on prayer, on on fellowship, on worship. We feed our faith rather than indulging our doubts. We feed our faith with God's Word rather than indulging our doubts. And so, well, you know, they got a point on TV news. They've got a point, you know, in this article that I read that goes against Scripture we doubt the doubts. We don't indulge the doubts. We feed our faith. Because if we don't, then we become what James calls a double minded man or woman, a double minded person, unstable. In all he does. That word that we translate as double minded, it only occurs two times in all of the New Testament here in James chapter 1 and again in James chapter 4, which we'll look at in a few minutes. And it means of two souls or of two selves. It's literally two separate uh, ways of thinking and being and directing our lives that are in competition with each other. And that's why he says we are unstable in all our ways. We are unsettled, we're restless, but that word unstable can be translated as, uh, it's got the same root as anarchy which is lawlessness, where there's, there's no, nothing calls the shots. There's no controlling rules or principles to give any order to anything. And so it's sort of a word picture here of one who asks God for wisdom but doubts that it's actually going to work. Is like somebody who's constantly wavering between multiple viewpoints or multiple ways of being. Nothing really calls the shots, and there are no solid guiding principles or values. And this way of being in the world is actually gaining popularity, as crazy as it sounds. It's this uh, viewpoint that sometimes is called moral relativism, where what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. There's no objective truth. And the whole idea of moral relativism has been called by one uh, apologist named Greg Kokel. He said, it's feet firmly planted in midair. That's moral relativism. It's feet firmly planted in midair. You stand for nothing. You can make no objective truth claim. But the whole idea, the whole principle falls apart. As soon as you say, it's wrong for you to tell me that there is an absolute truth. the, The statement, there is no absolute truth, is itself a statement of absolute truth. So the whole ideology falls apart. It crumbles in on itself this is not God's wisdom. There is absolute truth. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. He revealed himself to us. He has shown us the way. And James says, if you are in need of wisdom, go here. Don't go to the world. Don't go to Google unless you're searching for a Bible verse that you would know and grow in your faith, in your wisdom. Because moral relativism, feet firmly planted in midair, that is not the heart of a disciple. That is not the heart of the one we follow. Jesus showed us a totally different way. That's who we follow. That's who disciples follow. And Jesus came to earth with a singleness of mind and purpose. He was absolutely clear, such that before it was his time, they tried several times to make him king. They tried several times to, to turn him into what they were expecting as a Messiah, and he would have none of it. That's pretty hard for most humans to to reject that kind of fame and that kind of notoriety and that kind of, of exaltation. But he came with a singleness of mind and purpose. And one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of Luke is in chapter 9, verse 51, when we're told that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there, knowing that the cross awaited him there. He had just predicted his death three times in Luke chapter 9. You can read it. And then we're told he resolutely set out to go there, to go to the place where he would die. And so the bottom line, I'll give it to you now, I'll give it to you a little bit later. Once again, don't think I'm wrapping up. We've got more than five minutes left. But only an undivided heart can be fully united with Christ and his mission. That's why we're talking about this. That's why James tells us not to be double-minded not to be pulled in different directions and to kind of go with the flow, whichever one seems the strongest or seems the loudest. Because only an undivided heart can be fully united with Christ and with His mission. And we see this in the person of Christ, that He was one with the Father from start to finish. He never broke fellowship. He never broke union with Christ and the Father. They were one in purpose. They were one in intent. They were one in posture. The entire time. And towards the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus prays that we would be one with him just as he was one with the Father. Jesus prayed that that we would be one with each other and one with him just as he is one with the Father. And so, uh, as we switch over to James chapter 4, he takes it a step further as we continue to flesh out this idea what does it mean to be undivided in heart? and in mind. And James starts by sort of posing a a question, somewhat rhetorical question, in in that he answers it himself. He says in James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet and you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And I feel like this is such a, a, an apt description of the political division, the debates, the, the TV news and the stations on one end of the spectrum throwing mud at the stations on the other end of the spectrum, and social media is a whole other world uh, of division and back and forth and quarreling and fighting. And both extremes are harmful and sinful and they serve to deepen the divide. And it's sort of like, There's this 10% and there's this 10% and most people spend their time somewhere in between on that continuum. But these 10% are the loudest and they try to pull people into the extreme position. That if you're for this, then you have to be against that and you can't be for that if you're for this. And all of these divisions and all of this divisiveness only deepens the divide. And so you say, well, I've never killed anybody. Have you ever committed character assassination on somebody on social media? I hope not. But there are a whole lot of, of keyboard warriors that are just spewing hatred in, in ungodly ways. On both sides. It happens on both sides. And, and Christ shows us a different way. But James continues this argument in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's using very, very strong language here. And he's saying that we have to pick. Are we going to reside in and get our direction from the kingdom of God? Or are we going to get it from the kingdom of this world? And... It's interesting as he talks about this, he's saying friendship with the world, and really he's talking about the world's ways, friendship with the world and its ways is putting us in a position to be enemies of God and his ways whenever those two are in conflict. We need to make sure we land on the side of God, on the side of his word, on the side of the kingdom. And he's just talked about why this matters so much and the two kinds of wisdom at the end of chapter three. Uh, So I wanna read these passages to you. I don't have time to comment on them deeply, but I don't really need to. They don't need a lot of commentary, okay? But if you look at that last paragraph of James chapter three, he says this, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from the heavens, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. There's a lot of that going around right now. A lot of earthly, unspiritual, (laughs) of the devil wisdom. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Look at the news. Disorder and every evil practice. But, thank God for the but in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, sorry, my peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. Jesus said it in Matthew six twenty four. you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus and James are saying the same thing here. It's almost like they were brothers. Because they were. But they're basically saying only an undivided heart can be fully united with Christ and with his mission. It's not both and. It is either or. In verse 5, we continue. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, that's a puzzling verse. And there's a footnote if you're reading along in the NIV, um, whether it's in the Pew Bible or an NIV uh, translation uh, that says there's an alternate translation and the ESV actually gives that translation as well. Uh, And instead of saying um, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, it translates that phrase, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That's the translation that I personally believe fits the context best, that God created us with a spirit And God wants that spirit to love Him and to worship Him and to be in relationship with Him. God yearns intensely, jealously over that spirit. He wants us to be in union with Him. He knows that that's what's best for my soul and that's what's best for everybody else. And that when we unite our souls with anything other than God, trouble results from that eventually. But when our souls are united with God, That's best for me, and that's best for everyone around me. And so he gives us more grace. Verse 6. He gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want more grace? Be humble. Grace, by definition, is the unmerited favor of God, and if you think you deserve it because you're so high and mighty, you're not going to get it, is what he just said. You can't get it if you've earned it. You can only get it if you don't deserve it. That's the beauty of grace. The proud don't think they need it, and so they reject it by default. And yet the humble, the humble, see their need for grace, and they embrace it. It's Jesus talking about the publican, the tax collector, and the Pharisee at the temple. They both went up to pray. And the tax collector bowed his head, wouldn't even look up to God and just beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Contrasted by the Pharisee who stood at a distance and said, oh, thank God, I'm not like this tax collector, this sinner. And he asked the question, which one went away having met with God? Which one went away having received grace? It's an illustration of what James is saying here. Praise the Lord. He continually gives us more grace. And then verse 7 and 8 sort of tell us what to do about it. We should submit to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is what we do about it. We we submit to God. We come near to him and stay there. Get close and stay there. Get close daily. Get close on a regular basis and stay there. You do this through the word. You do this through prayer. You do this through fellowship. You do this through worship. You find ways to reunite with God, ways to come back to God, ways to start your day with God, and ways to end your day with God in that relationship. We come near to Him, and we stay there. We, we wash our hands. That, that's talking about holiness. That's living a holy life. Now, this has kind of taken on an ironic turn in the last three four months you've probably been told to wash your hands by more people in more ways at more times than you had ever heard since you were a toddler wash your hands wash your hands did you wash your hands wash your hands wash your hands right but what we're really talking about there is to be cleansed to repent repeatedly when we when we get it wrong when we when we make a mistake we wash our hands we don't just say oh doggone it my hands are dirty now I guess there's nothing I can do about it. No, we go and we wash and we be cleansed and we repent every time we're aware that we have fallen short. He's speaking to a Jewish audience that knew about ritual washing. They did it every time before they ate so that they would not eat with unclean hands and make themselves unclean. So there's there's a little bit more to the lesson here. But the the lesson for us is to pursue holiness. And when you recognize that you've missed the mark, wash your hands, repent, come back to God. Purify your hearts. The hands are sort of the outward... But we have inward cleansing that needs to take place too we need to purify our hearts and he redresses them as double-minded purify your hearts have a singleness of purpose and direction just like jesus and the word double-minded there is the same as in verse 8 because only an undivided heart can be fully united with christ in his mission and so, in these verses, in chapter 1 and here in chapter 4, we can see some characteristics of the double-minded, and we can put them all up and see them all at once. They're unstable. They're full of doubt. They're impure and unclean. They're separated from God. They're proud. They're adulterous. And adulterous is is a fitting word because it kind of... it's in quotes, so to speak, it's not saying that you will automatically commit adultery, but that you're adulterous with God, that you've pledged yourself to him, and yet if you're double-minded, if you're led around by the ways of the world, then, then it's like you're, you're sort of cheating on God, this one who has entered into a covenant with, of grace with you, who, is, who has brought you into the family of God. And so all of those are characteristics of the double-minded, and I don't want any of those to describe me. And I would imagine you don't want any of those to describe you either. Now, you may have noticed that my footwear uh, looks kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Did anybody notice that? Is there anybody noticing my shoes for the first time? You don't have to raise your hands. But from a spiritual perspective, being double-minded... It's kind of like trying to have one foot in the kingdom. I'm sorry, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. We'll put the nice shoe in the kingdom, right? This, is, this pair of shoes has through 400 miles on it, all right? It's kind of beat up. It doesn't look right at all. It doesn't feel right. This is an ultralight shoe. It's colder. So this foot's cold, this foot's warm. It's just kind of doesn't feel right, it doesn't look right. It's because it isn't right. It's not right to, to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And I can further illustrate this as I realized I'm going to be up on a stage and, and the world is lower and the kingdom is higher. And so we can full, further illustrate this. If you're double-minded in this sense and you're, you're trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, they're not even on the same plane. And so try doing this. It takes a lot of attention because you got one foot and you're up and you're down, and you're unstable (laughs) in all your ways. You wouldn't want to do this for very long, would you? You're gonna fall, aren't you? And yet, when we get both feet up and we're solidly in the kingdom, we're not unstable. We're not pulled in different directions. We choose to humble ourselves, to receive God's grace, to draw near to God and allow him to draw near to us because he's with us always, but we wander off, especially if we've got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Now, the application of this, I think James has been crystal clear. Some passages of Scripture have a lot of different potential applications. What we've been looking at today, James has directed us what to do. We wash our hands. We draw near to God. We submit ourselves. We humble ourselves. We choose to plant ourselves solidly kingdom of God, we purify our hearts and get anything out of our hearts that would divide our loyalty with God. And so there's a couple of suggestions that you might take away from this. You could say a prayer every day that helps orient you and decide at the beginning of the day, sort of your pledge of allegiance each day to your heavenly father. And as you do that, you could make a list and write down anything, almost like a personal inventory, anything that has happened in the last 24 hours that doesn't fit in the kingdom of God, doesn't fit in your professed allegiance to God. And then you could get busy and start making changes and start getting rid and wash your hands and purify your hearts. And if you'd like a little guidance on that prayer, one that you could start with, that you could pray every day to ask God to help you in this process would be Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, familiar words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a prayer King David prayed. And you could make that your prayer and write down the things that come to mind. And if you make such a list, I would encourage you to share it with a friend, a close friend, somebody you can trust. It's not going to put it on Facebook. But we'll pray with you and maybe help you stay accountable. If you're in a banding together group, you could share it with your group and say, will you guys pray with me on this? These are a couple of things that don't quite fit. They don't line up in the kingdom. And that's where I want to live. And that's where I want to be and then get busy and, and never underestimate the power of awareness. When you become aware and God brings conviction and you choose to stay aware, you will change. It's amazing. That's how the Holy Spirit living within us, bringing conviction to us is meant to work, that as we become aware of things that are outside of God's will for our lives and we stay aware of those things until those things are no longer a part of our lives. Respond in faith. I want to share with you my daily Pledge of Allegiance. This is something I've been doing for a little over three years now. I picked this up and sort of added to it and got it just the way I wanted it. But I have a couple journals. I have a banding together journal where I do my scripture and my soap. And then I have a prayer journal where I just kind of pray with God, write out prayers, starts with gratitude, it moves through, it always ends. The last three lines contain some form or fashion of this pledge of allegiance of my personal life it's early in the day in simplicity of heart O Lord I surrender my whole self completely to you this day to be your servant forever and I got that from uh, Thomas Akempis who is a spiritual writer phenomenal wrote the imitation of Christ if you've never read it you should but that sort of reorients me And you can look back over years now at the end of every day, every day's journal in simplicity of heart. Before this day gets out of hand, in simplicity of heart, oh Lord, I surrender my whole self completely to you to be your servant forever. And it's amazing how things that don't fit with that are brought to my attention so that they can be addressed and so that they can be changed. Because an undivided heart cannot be fully united to Christ and his mission. Sorry. A divided heart cannot be fully united. Only an undivided heart can be fully united to Christ and his mission. And that's my prayer for each of us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that it speaks to us, that it encourages us, that it challenges us, that it convicts us but also that it instructs us and it casts a vision for our lives. And that is our hope and our prayer today, Lord, that we would say yes to your vision for our lives, that we would say yes to wholehearted devotion to you. Lord, the world needs more disciples. world needs more people who are intentionally focused on following you, on living as you would if you were them. Help us to be those people. Help us to reach out and to make such disciples, to be disciple makers, to intentionally invest in a relationship with someone, to help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. Help us, Lord, to to pray that prayer of David, to invite you to show us anything in us that doesn't line up with the vision you have for our lives and help us to change that. In Jesus' name we pray.